0: Gracious God, I pray now that as we come to your word, that it would help us to be attentive both to it and especially to your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that as my words line up with your words, that they would fall on ears and hearts, ready to receive them and respond. And God, if I say anything that isn't from you, I pray that those words would quickly be forgotten. I pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Wives, submit to your husbands. What could possibly go wrong this morning for the preacher? <laughs> I'm Mike, and I'm one of the priests here at Truro. If you brought your own Bible this morning, I'd like to invite you to open it to Ephesians chapter 5. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, I'd love for you to grab one of the Bibles in your pew. You can follow along this morning, Ephesians chapter 5, it's on page 978. If you didn't bring a paper Bible, and there's not one within grabbing distance in your pew, the good news is most of you have a supercomputer in your pocket that will allow you to Google Ephesians chapter 5, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We've been tracking with Paul through his letter to the Ephesians over the last few months or so, And this morning, we arrive at the section that scholars refer to as the household codes. Household codes were common in the ancient world. Aristotle himself is said to have been responsible for writing a household code, which outlined how husbands and wives and parents and children, and slaves and masters were to relate to each other within the context of the ancient household. Such discourse wasn't limited to Aristotle, but was common throughout Greco-Roman antiquity and was considered vital to maintaining the status quo, the established social order, with the male pater familias, or head of household, holding near limitless authority. Over the next three weeks, we'll see how Paul reinterprets traditional household codes in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and the Christian's life in Christ, starting first with wives and husbands. Now, for many Christians in the West today, this text is loaded. I could see it in many of your physical body expressions as it was read. It's loaded. It's been reduced to wives submit to your husbands, and thus has been abused misused, avoided, or ignored. For some, it's become central to understanding a primary human relationship, or it's been extrapolated and applied to gender roles in the church and beyond. Now, this morning, I'm going to do my best to take this text seriously while also trying to sensitively untangle what Paul was trying to communicate and what it might mean for us today. But first a few disclaimers. My wife and I, as I'm sure you can imagine, spent most of this much of this past week talking about Ephesians chapter 5. Jenny and I have been married now for over 14 years and we've been together for over 20 and there's one thing that she wanted to make sure that I said towards the outset. I kept asking her, so Jenny, what about the head of household? Like, or the, the, the husband is the head? What do I do with this, Jenny? And she said, I don't know. You have to figure it out. But she, there was one thing she said she wanted, make sure you say this, Mike. And that's first, I want to acknowledge that every marriage is different. And the way a husband and wife work out roles and expectations within the context of their own marriage will look different from one couple to the next. That's the that's the thing that Jenny wanted to make sure I said. The second thing for me, a disclaimer, I want to acknowledge that Paul himself admits that much of this is a mystery. He does that right there in verse 32. And so like Paul, I'm going to do my best to approach this text and this topic with humility. Third, Paul is not talking about women in ministry here, nor is he speaking about gender roles in general. He's talking specifically about how husbands and wives are supposed to relate to one another in Christ. To extrapolate beyond that, based on Ephesians 5 at least, would be eisegesis. That is, reading something into the text, as opposed to exegesis, taking something from the text. All right? So there's my first, my three disclaimers as we begin. Is that okay? Let's dive in, shall we? First, it is so important every time we approach the scripture that we take a look at context. Context. The context is the key to understanding what Paul is doing here in this particular section of Ephesians. And so in order to get this right, we need to back up and review the larger argument that Paul is making in the letter. So let's review. In the first three chapters, we see how God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. How in Christ, he has changed the course of history and by grace given us new life in him. We who were once alienated from God and from each other have been brought into union, both with God and with each other, and we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life. So far in the second half of Ephesians, in light of all that God has done in us and for us in the person and work of Jesus, we are empowered by God's Spirit to grow up in Christ, Paul sets the tone for this life in Christ by exhorting the church to walk with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. He describes Christian unity in Christ as the natural outgrowth of this new life. And as Jamie shared two weeks ago, we put off the old way and we put on Christ. And we do it by the power of the Holy Spirit in community together. And as Jose taught last week, this new way of love is a way of walking. It's a way of walking as we copy and paste Christ's life into our own life in community. This is the context into which Paul reinterprets traditional Greco Roman household codes. He's already spent several paragraphs urging humility and patience and love and unity putting away harshness and anger in favor of light and love and tender-hearted kindness. That's in chapter 4. If this is the context, humility, patience, love, unity, putting away harshness and anger in favor of light and love and tender-hearted kindness, then any application of this passage about marriage that is used to dominate or used to control in the name of headship or a husband's proper role in the household is a gross misinterpretation. Any application of this text that normalizes or excuses or explains away abuse is absolutely 100% wrong. As Paul himself writes in chapter 4, verse 20, this is not how you learned Christ. Any application of this text, any working out of potential implications must keep the larger context in mind. Prioritizing humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, kindness, tenderheartedness, etc. This is the larger context in which this particular passage must be read. Now, If you have a Bible, look at this. This is actually one of the places where the headings that publishers added to our Bible actually aren't that helpful. You might not know this, but in the original Greek, the headings and the verse numbers actually don't exist. They're not in there. The publishers and the translators add them in in there to help us get a handle on the text. Now, if you look closely, verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands, is actually a continuation of Paul's previous thought, which begins all the way back in verse 18. Here is how the thought goes. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Those of us who are growing up in Christ are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, praising God, verse 19, giving thanks in all circumstances, verse 20, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, verse 21. Now look at this, the ESV, which is a translation of the Bible I generally like, and I read it every day inserts a new header, husbands and wives, in between verses 21 and 22, which makes it seem like verse 22 is the beginning of a new thought rather than a continuation and an application of the previous thought in which Paul tells us we ought to what? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What Paul is doing here is describing a posture of mutual submission, also known as mutualism. It's not an erasure of differences between husbands and wives or men and women. We're not the same, but neither is it primarily a statement about hierarchy. So let's look at it together, starting with verses 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is where we often get stuck with wives submit to your husbands. But what if what Paul is doing here is not meant to be prescriptive? Do this and this and this in order to have a healthy, godly, holy marriage. What if it's meant to be descriptive. And what if what he is describing here isn't primarily about gender roles or hierarchy as it is a description of the posture that ought to mark not only marriage but the Christian life in general applied here in this instance to marriage. It's a posture of mutual submission of sacrifice and humility, giving oneself away for the sake of the other, wives submitting to husbands, husbands loving wives as Christ loved the church, even to the point of death. That's not to say that wives shouldn't submit to husbands. They should. But Paul qualifies this statement by putting it into the context of verses 18 to 21, where he writes that we all... Being filled with the Holy Spirit, ought to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, but what about verse 23? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as I studied this text, interestingly enough, the commentaries are pretty evenly divided on what it means. It's probably an exercise in confirmation bias. Half of them think Paul is talking about authority, which would make sense in a section that includes parents and children and slaves and masters. The other half think that Paul is talking about unity, about the husband being one with the wife, like Christ is one with the body, uh, the church, which would also make sense, seeing as unity has been a major theme over the course of the previous chapter, and Paul is very shortly going to talk about husbands and wives becoming one. So which is it? Does the husband being the head mean the husband's in charge, or that he is to be united to the wife? Interestingly enough, the early church fathers, who by and large were bachelors and lived in a significantly more patriarchal society than we do, respond with a yes to both, kind of, before generally saying, don't overthink this, submit, love, respect, sacrifice, all of it, all around. Theodoret, who is a fifth, fifth century theologian and bishop, wrote The apostle has been very constrained in setting forth this analogy of the husband as the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church's body. Its purpose is to encourage women to respect men and to implant in men an affection for their wives. In other words, don't overthink it. Cruciformity is the point. Let me say that again. Cruciformity is the point. Any relationship between Christians, including marriage, ought to take a cruciform shape. That is, it ought to be shaped by the cross of Jesus. How each Christian marriage walks that out will look inevitably different, and that's okay. As long as the marriage is shaped like the cross. How husbands and wives walk this out is important to Paul. After all, healthy, Jesus-centered marriages are a blessing to everyone. But marriage here isn't actually the main thing. Jesus is the main thing. Marriage is important, but it's not the main thing. Paul makes that clear here in chapter 5 by way of the passage's chiastic structure. Is it okay if I nerd out just a little bit about literary devices? A chiasm is a literary structure in which the author creates a sandwich to draw attention to the thing in the middle. We often miss this, right? But it is in the Bible over and over and over again. The Old Testament writers used it. The Gospel writers used it. Paul himself uses it right here. In this instance, Paul speaks about husbands and wives if you look at it, verses 22 to 25. And then again, in verses 28 to 33. And what's in the middle? A bit about Jesus. And in doing so, he makes sure that we know that Jesus is the center. Paul writes, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. For Paul, Jesus is always at the center. For the church in Ephesus, as for Truro here in Fairfax County, as in our lives and our marriages, Jesus must be the center. Not marriage, but Jesus. Not children or politics or money or personal preferences or our leaders, but Jesus. It's why right here in the middle of a discussion about how husbands and wives who are together growing up in Christ ought to relate to one another, Paul interjects with a bit about Jesus, reminding us in verse 25 that Christ gave himself up for us, the church. And in verse 26, that Jesus sanctifies us by baptism, the washing of water and the word. That Jesus, in verse 27, makes us new and beautiful and splendid. It's like Paul can't help himself. He starts talking about marriage, and before he can even think twice, he's back talking about Jesus. And it makes perfect sense for Paul and for the Christian. The person and work of Jesus is how we are to make sense of the world. It's how we're to make sense of marriage and ethics and parenting. Everything through the lens of Jesus and his cross. Which brings us back to his discussion regarding household codes. Paul writes in verse 28 in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's look at this together, because I think this is the crux of Paul's instruction for marriage, the practical. After all, writing that a wife should submit to her husband in ancient Rome, there's absolutely nothing controversial about that at all. That was the norm. It was to be expected. It's the admonition that husbands should love their wives as Christ loves the church, as they love themselves. That is the bit that's countercultural and subversive. That turns the status quo on its head and points to the way power works in Jesus' upside-down kingdom. This is Paul's cruciform vision of marriage. He starts with love, verses 28 and 33. Paul uses this word three times in verse 28 alone. You can circle it. And each time he uses the Greek word agape for love, which speaks of an unconditional, selfless, and self-giving love. That's not what a Roman husband would by nature, the way that he'd love his wife, it's cruciform love. Verse 29, Paul speaks of the flesh. For Paul, our, our physical bodies are a gift of God. And just as we ought to nourish and care for our physical bodies, so a husband's love for a, for a wife ought to be marked by love and care for the sake of others, for the other It's a cross shaped love. Verse 31, Paul speaks about leaving and cleaving, as we often say. Now, this is really interesting because in ancient Rome, it was the woman who would leave her family and join the husband's family. The instruction here in verse 31 turns that upside down. It's not the wife who leaves her family for her husband, but it's the husband who leaves his family for his wife. It's backwards, this act of giving oneself away turning the traditional order of the day upside down. It's cruciform, shaped like the cross, itself an act of love and self-sacrifice that turned power and death and sin upside down. This love of Jesus, Jesus giving himself away on the cross, power under, it's upside down. And that's what Jesus, what Paul is talking about right here is an upside down, cruciform love. Lastly, unity, union, to becoming one is the goal. Just as there is to be unity in the church, which we looked at several weeks ago in chapter 4, there is to be unity in a marriage. We are members of a body, to becoming one. We know from chapter 4 that Christian unity is marked by humility and gentleness and bearing with one another in love. That Christian unity recognizes gifts in the other and uses gifts for the sake of the other. And just as that sort of unity ought to mark the church, so it ought to mark a marriage where a man and woman, different but both made in the image of God, are joined as one in self-giving love. It's cruciform love. Here's the thing. You can make Ephesians 5 about the hierarchy of gender roles in a marriage if you like. So long as that hierarchy maintains its cruciform shape. Because I think that that is the main point for Paul. The cruciform shape of relationships for those who are growing up in Christ. In Jesus, authority comes by way of laying down one's life by way of self-sacrifice. Power comes by way of service and giving oneself away. A power under, not a power over. And as Paul turns the Greco-Roman household codes on their head, repeatedly exhorting the men who held the vast majority of power in the ancient world to give themselves away for their wives to love them sacrificially and completely. Contextualizing their submission with a statement first about mutual submission, with a sort of love that would have absolutely challenged the status quo. Paul makes sure that the Ephesians know that Jesus is still to be the priority, that it is Jesus and his death on the cross that ought to shape our lives and our relationships in our marriages. Paul uses the discussion about marriage to repeatedly point back to Jesus, reminding the Ephesians and us that Jesus' love for the church is the main thing, that it leads to sacrificial love and other oriented unity, both in the home and in the church. Y'all, it is so easy to read passages like this and immediately try to identify who has the power over whom. To look for what it says about who is in charge. Man, isn't that a DC thing to do? But that completely misses the point. It's not how power in Jesus' kingdom works. Jesus' power is, isn't a power over sort of love, but a power under sort of love. Jesus' authority comes by way of service and sacrifice, giving himself away for the sake of others. As Paul writes in Philippians, Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant, being formed and found in human likeness, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. In Jesus' kingdom, power is exercised through service and sacrifice. It's how it's supposed to work in the church and in Christian households and marriages. Not power over, but power under. Not dominion or control or who's in charge, but sacrificial agape for the well-being of the other and the good of the whole. And so husbands and wives, here's the question for your marriage. Is it cruciform? Is it cruciform? Is the way you love one another formed and shaped like the cross? We read and hear this passage and want to know who it is who has the power, who's in charge. But friends, that is not how you learned Christ For in Christ, it's not about who has the power, but about who gives up the power for the sake of the other. It's about exercising authority by laying it down. And as such, as always, it ought to bring us back to Jesus. The one who perfectly embodies this sort of love for the good of the church. For you and for me that we might be reconciled to God and one another, growing up in Christ together. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for your scripture. We praise you that your love is an upside-down love, and in your kingdom authority comes by a way of giving up authority. And so I pray, God, that in our life together, in our marriages, in our households, and in this church, that our love might be marked by self-sacrifice for the sake of the other, that we might grow up in Christ together. It's through Jesus that we pray. Amen.